Pharisee, a man who was a Jew, raised in a Jewish family. His grandpa was a Jew, and he is filled with great learning. He is zealous for the law, and he has been trained from the time he was a young boy how you do Scripture, how you do church, how you do worship. And so he goes about his business, offering sacrifices and keeping the law and doing all these things. And he's heard about these people that call themselves Christians. They are people of the way. And so this young man, Saul of Tarsus, who was raised at the feet of Gamaliel, a famous rabbi, who had it all together, was trying to please God. And he thought the way to do that was to shut this business down of people who are not keeping the law, who are not offering sacrifices, who don't do it right. And so in all good conscience, he goes out with letters of permission, probably, I think, on a Tuesday. He goes out with letters from the high priest, and he's going to take people and bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem, have them stoned or beaten or put in prison or maybe killed. And so he's breathing out threatenings against the people of this way or people who, he says, call upon the name of the Lord. And so he's really busy doing this, and he's on his way to Damascus, and a great light shines around him, and it's the Lord, and he's going to confront him. And he says, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Don't you realize it's hard for you to kick against these pricks and to resist this? And so now this gets Saul's attention. He's stricken with blindness. He doesn't know exactly which way to turn. And he says, What would you have me to do, Lord? And Jesus says, You go into the city, and it'll be told you there what you must do. Meantime, back at the ranch, God talks to Ananias, and he says, I want you to go to Saul and lay hands on him so that he can receive his sight. And Ananias says, no way, Jose, I've heard about this man. I'm afraid of him. He, he's laying waste the church. He's killing Christians. I don't want, what if it's a trap? What if I lay my hands on him and he puts me under arrest or something? And so I don't want to do this. And then God says, you go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. And how he will bear my name before the Gentiles and before kings and magistrates. So you go do this. And so Ananias went and laid hands on him. Receive your sight. And as it were, great scales fell from his eyes. And Ananias said, Now Saul, why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And so Saul did that. And we notice in this statement here, in in Acts chapter 9, in the conversation... He says, you go because he's a chosen instrument of mine, and I will show him how much he must suffer. Now, God was not trying to get even with Saul. You might think on one level in reading this that he says, okay, Saul, you like persecuting people. You like hurting people. You like making people suffer. I'll show you some suffering. But that's not what it is at all. God is saying, I'm going to channel this energy. I'm going to take this man's ability to focus his dogged determination to try to please me and show him the way to do it. And I'm going to leave him here in this world that is filled with tribulation, filled with enemies of the cross, people whose God is their belly, and they're going to be coming after Saul or after Paul, but I'm going to divert his energy and use him to turn things around for the best and for good. And so, as we read on, Saul's Paul, sure enough, gets into trouble. And this happens throughout the Scriptures. When people sign up to work for God, they get into all kinds of trouble. There's no guarantee that when you obey God or when you become a Christian that everything's going to be a bed of roses or hunky-dory or all things are going to work out the way you had planned throughout your life, but rather it's going to be difficult. Straight is the way and difficult is the way that leads to life. And so, so Paul says, 
on different occasions, he had to verify his credentials. And he had to argue, well, yes, I'm a true disciple. I'm a true apostle of the Lord. And so as he explains himself, I'm, are they servants? Well, I'm, I'm more of a servant than they are. And listen to what he says here. He says, I've, I've, uh, I've been in more labors. I've been in far more imprisonments. I've been beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I was on the receiving end. And I know exactly what Stephen felt when the angels took him home. As I held the garments of the people who stoned him to death at my bidding. But they didn't kill me at Lister. I got up and I left town the next day. I went back into the city and I left town on my schedule, checked out of the hotel, got my reward points and left on my schedule because they didn't kill me. But they tried. I was beaten with rods. I've been stoned three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I floated around out in the deep wondering if my life was over at that point. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers. And dangers from rivers? What could be dangerous about a river? I've been in dangers of rivers and dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. There are people like Diotrephes who think morally, more highly of themselves than they ought to think. And they, they're like Demetrius the silversmith and other people that just make life miserable for a person trying to live for God. I've been in danger like that. I've been in, in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and I've been thirsty often without food, in cold and exposure. How dare we become cynical in our little old lives when things aren't going the way we want and we get all upset just over the noise of life's daily noisy throng just because we don't like the way things look around us. And here is Paul fighting for his very life to stay alive in order to serve God. And he says, not only that, that's all on the outside. Now I've got to deal with what's on the inside of me. It's eating me up as far as consuming my interest on the inside. There's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? If brethren were falling to the wayside, he was concerned about that. If he'd go back to a congregation that he had helped establish and some of the brethren weren't there anymore, were they killed by somebody like Saul of Tarsus? Or were they persecuted? Were they in prison? Or had they died a natural death? What's going on around here? So he's concerned about that. And I'm concerned for all the, the, the churches. And who is weak without my being weak? And who is led into sin without my intense concern? And all of that pales in comparison if you try to compare that to the last week of the life of Jesus. You read through that final week, very little sleep, almost no rest. Illegal trials, mockery. They beat him nearly to death before they killed him on the cross. And he endured that suffering. And so the prophet saw that centuries before in Isaiah 53. He had no comeliness or, or no visage that we would desire to look upon him. He wasn't handsome and good looking and nine feet tall and glowing white. He was despised among men. His visage was so marred, we could hardly look at his face. It was a bloody beating nearly to death, and then they sacrificed him, and as he gave up the ghost, he had a forgiving heart. And Paul's, Paul's sufferings do not even compare to that. And ours don't even compare to Paul's most of the time. Do you reckon it's worth comparing? Paul did some suffering in his day, and he figured this out. And there's a term, reckon, in the New Testament. 
in Romans 8, verse 18 and 19 specifically, where Paul says, I looked at all my sufferings, and I put them all on the scales. And this is a term that comes from weighing something, like you put a balance out here, and you put some weight on here, a pound or an ounce, and you put something else over here and see if it weighs a pound or weighs an ounce and get the scales balanced. And so Paul said, I checked out all this suffering I'm doing. I checked out all the suffering of the saints, and I decided to compare that with the eternal weight of glory, and it doesn't work. He said, I just gave up because nothing will get the scales moving. You put all the glory that waits on us as Christians. You take all the promises of God. You take the power of the resurrected Lord and the power of love and of faith and discipline and all these things, the power of the Spirit, and you put them on the scales. You can't put enough stuff of any kind, all these sufferings, night and the day and the deep, false brethren, all these things, you can't even get the scales going. It's not worthy to compare. And so he says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading you to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit, not to us, with our spirit to God, of our adoption, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be glorified also with Him. For I consider, I reckon, I've been thinking, I did the math on this, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to even be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to the, to the futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. It's as though the very creation itself is saying, why did you leave me like this? Let's do something about this. Let's be transformed into an eternal glory. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. There's a great day coming, a translation, a change. This mortal must put on immortality. So we're looking for the redemption of our body. For in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for he who hopes for what he is already seeing. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. So Paul describes there, we go through some tough times. Paul had seen, no doubt, a widow at a congregation that looked at him funny while he preached. And as he did a double take, he, he looked in her eyes again and he thought, why do I know this woman? Who is this? And then it comes back to him in the middle of his sermon. That's the guy... I put to death because he was a Christian. And now she's alone because of me and my Phariseeism. So he felt all these things and he said, we long, we groan for the time we could get out of this flesh and that we could be transformed and that our bodies could be redeemed and there's a better place waiting for us. So it's not even worthy to compare. The scales won't even move when we try to line up what we're going through with what 
Paul and Jesus went through or with what the glory is waiting for us out there. But we deal with Satan on a daily basis and Satan comes up and says, if you will serve me, I'll give you all these things. But we have a Christian philosophy, a Christian attitude, and it says, well, I don't need that. I'm not impressed because my father owns all of this and I have a great inheritance waiting for me. And Satan says, okay, then if you won't serve me, I'll take all of it away. That's okay because I count all things but loss. It doesn't belong to me anyway. It belongs to God. So I don't need all this. Well, Satan says, okay, then I think I'll just kill you. And our attitude then is, you don't scare me, you old devil. Because for me to die is gain. And if you kill me, I'll even be better off. So there, I'm not afraid. And there's not going to be seven more unclean spirits coming in. I'm taking care of this. And then Satan says, okay, then, then I'll just let you live. I'll let you struggle with the flesh and see if you win. I'll leave you alive in all this. And our attitude to that is, okay, that's fine with me because for me to live is Christ. And so that makes it okay. Kill me, it's better. Leave me alive, I'm okay. Take everything away. Hadn't got it anyway, it doesn't belong to me. I'll give you all this stuff. I'm not impressed, it belongs to my Father. So Paul struggled in the flesh. Before he became a Christian, he had this dual nature, this business of, I don't do what I want to do and I... And I I uh, do what I don't want to do, so things are wrong side out sometimes. And he talked about that same duality later on after he was a Christian. But in Romans 7:24, he concludes with the struggle, O wretched man that I am, who, not what, but who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And so Jesus is the deliverer who will deliver us from the body of this death. He shall separate us. Deliver us from the body of death. But then Paul turns it around on the positive side and he says, Now, once we are with Christ, is there anything that can take us loose away from Him? Is there anything that can separate us from the love of Christ? Romans 8.35 Now notice this list as it sounds very familiar. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And there again, it's not what. What could mess me up so bad that I'd be separated from the love of Christ? But who? Who would separate us from the love of Christ? The evil one? His demons, the influence of demonic people and ungodly people. Who, who could separate us from the love of Christ? What about tribulation? What about distress? Persecution? Famine? That's the same list Paul says, I've already lived through all of that and it didn't separate me from the love of Christ. He will still deliver me from every evil work. And then he goes on to say, will it be nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, is that not the most powerful enemy we face and the last one that will be destroyed? Not even death, not death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Not to the fifth dimension and not to the sixth degree of separation. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. It's going to be there. He is faithful. And so then Paul talks about if we are His, we look forward to our adoption as sons. We are sons of God. We have looking forward to the redemption of our body. We have the deliverance from every evil work. We have not been given the spirit of fear, but of love and of power in the Holy Spirit. And so we are more than conquerors in all these things because of our faith and because of our learning to love like Jesus. And so in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, as we read... Well, Charles read a moment ago. But we all with unveiled face, 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. You are being transformed. I am being transformed. Even though our inward man, our outward man is perishing, our inward man is renewed day by day, and we're heading in the direction of, a, of an ultimate goal. And so we're being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. We have a kind of glory now. Paul even said that there's one kind of glory for the fish and the beasts and the birds and all that and the grass. All these have a different kind of glory. We have a glory. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are created in His image, but we are earthly, we are physical, we are sensual, we are of the flesh. But our dual nature, our spirit, lives within us. And so someday we're going to be changed from this glory to that glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Nathaniel Hawthorne, decades ago, wrote a short story, Great Stone Face. A little Ernest lived with his mother in a cabin in a valley where you could see this great stone face there in New Hampshire. And every afternoon, late in the evening, him and his mom would sit on the front porch and they'd look out there and see that great stone face. And, and one, night, one night, little Ernest made a comment about it. And he said, that, that face is... Is so special. It just has such a kind look and such a such a a, a great person. It seems and is in that stone face. And his mother said, "Well, son, there's a there's a an old prophecy that's been around for a long time, and it says that someday there will be somebody who grew up here in this valley and left home will come back. They'll return to the valley." And they'll be the exact image. They'll look just like that stone face. And little Ernest's heart was just thrilled within him. And so he said, oh, Mama, I do hope I live to get to see that man. And his mother didn't want to do a reality check and tell him how it probably wouldn't happen because it never has happened yet. And so she simply said to him, perhaps you may. And so he grew up into a fine young man and he kept up the ritual himself of looking out every afternoon late, looking up there at the great stone face. And one day word got out that this, this person who had left town and was grown up now and made his way in the world was coming back home and he was, he was going to be the, the spitting image of that great stone face. And so he had made a lot of money. He was wealthy. He was a millionaire and he had piles of gold and all this. And so he's going to come to town and... Ernest didn't even get his name, but he heard that the nickname of the man was Mr. Gathergold because he had all this money. And so he's coming into town in a fine gilded coach led by beautiful horses all tricked out. And, and the people lined up on the side of the road going into town and on the town square along the streets. They were watching this man and he starts coming into town. Ernest is looking over the shoulders of the people trying to catch a glimpse because he's waited all of his life to see this man who looks just like the image of the great stone face and he watches, and as the coach comes by, there's a poor woman sitting on the street on the side of the road with two small children, and she's begging. And as the coach comes by, this yellow claw of a hand comes out and drops two copper coins in the dust without a word as the coach went on. And people are shouting, it's the image of the great stone face. And Ernest said, no. He saw the man was had yellow skin and a pointy nose and his lips were pursed together. He looked more like a bird or something. And it wasn't anything like the great stone face. And with a character like that and no benevolence, that's not him. But the townspeople got all excited. But before long, the money was all gone. And the man was just a skeleton of a man with yellow drawn-up skin 
and was forgotten, and the prophecy failed again. But then later on, word got out after Ernest spent more months looking at the great stone face. Word got out that a man was coming back to town that grew up there, and he's been out, and he joined the armed services, and now he has become of high rank. He's a general. He has all kinds of awards and, and uh, pins and, and all this and medals. And so they called him General Blood and Thunder. And so he's coming to town, and he's going to give a speech that night. And Ernest is all excited, and he goes down to the town square, and here comes this old soldier, and he gets up with his, all of his pomp and circumstance and his, his medals all over him and all the regalia, and he stands up with a weathered brow and a ferocious, growly voice showing his disdain for the enemy and his hardness of character. And Ernest and people were shouting, Oh, it's the great stone face himself. I never saw anything like it. And Ernest is like, No. That's not the man of the great stone face. There's no character. There's no love. There's no compassion. He doesn't care about everybody else. That's just not him. So every evening, Ernest would keep looking at the mountain. And word got out that there was a man coming back who looked just like the, the great stone face. It's the spitting image. And they, they just called him Old Stony Fist because it looked just like the mountain. And he was... He was going to be president. He was in politics. He had made his way up in government. And now they're going to elect this man president, and he's going to come. He's like a silver-tongued orator. And Ernest thought, well, he might as well just be called the tongue because he can speak so well. And so he gets up to speak. And as Ernest beholds and everybody's screaming out, it's old Stony Fizz himself. He listens to the hollowness of the man and his attitude and, and the, the shallowness of his words. And he realizes... It's just not him. It's not him. So he studies the mountain further. And he, every afternoon, thinks, someday, if I live long enough, this man will come. And word got out that another man was coming, just like the mountain. He's the poet. He has some beautiful words, beautiful things to say. He understands human nature, and he has all these good things. And so Ernest took an advance trip this time, and he invited the man to his own house, to his own cabin, to meet him in person. And so the, the poet arrives, and Ernest looks, and he looks right at him face to face, and he, he studies him, and he says, you're not the great stone face. And the poet laughs and says, you thought I was the great stone face? And you've been let down in all these other prophecies. These other guys came, and, and they're not the great stone face. And you thought it was me. It's not me. But he was scheduled to give some poems and, and an oration that night. And so was Ernest going to speak to the, to the townspeople. And so Ernest and the poet go down arm in arm. They go down to the town square late in the evening. The sun is setting. The mountain's in the background. And these two guys get up. And when Ernest gets up to speak, the poet watches him. As he speaks about the valley and the mountain and his hopes for life and, and opens his soul to the people. And the poet says, look, it's the great stone face. And everybody saw it. And they saw Ernest. It was Ernest himself was the very image of the great stone face from a lifetime of studying it, watching it, thinking about it, contemplating it, longing to see such a character. He had become that very thing himself. But Ernest said, no, it's not me. And he went away sad in his own heart, back to his cabin, wondering if someday the man would ever come that looked just like the great stone face. But see, that's what Paul is talking about with the Christian's life who watches the image of the heavenly. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among men, and we beheld His glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father. 
And when we spend a lifetime of learning about Jesus, we all with unveiled face are beholding that image. And we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. In 1 John 3 and verse 2, John speaks about something like this. And he says, Beloved, we're now children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. We won't just see Him as He is. We will be like Him. We'll have a different body. We'll be redeemed in our very bodies and our our very souls. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 17, Now where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And Jesus has set us free from the law, from sin, from death. And at this time of the year, we're excited about liberty and we pay attention to what it costs to have our freedom. And yet in Jesus Christ is the ultimate freedom because it frees us from the body of this death. It frees us from the struggle, the constant struggle of doing right or doing wrong as we long for and we groan for the time that we are transformed and translated. If we look into the face of God and look at the love of God, we have something to aim for to become like that. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made and were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could that scroll contain the whole Though stretched from sky to sky, the love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Is your heart right with God today? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Would you arise today and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord? Or would you return to Him, back to the fold of safety, back to the kingdom, if you've been away? While we stand together and while we sing, would you come? Have I enough affection?